Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Allison Benedict. And I'm Dan Coyce. Dan, what's the worst parenting fail you've admitted to on Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting? Uh, probably the time the Tooth Fairy completely forgot to visit. Join us for expert interviews, parenting triumphs and fails, and straight talk about raising kids from age zero to finally out of the house. Just search for Slate Mom and Dad Are Fighting in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast app. The GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up your packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 20th, 2014, the We Are Invincible edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate in our mausoleum-like Slate DC studio. Joining me today is Slate's chief political correspondent, John Dickerson. Hello, John. Hello, David. And Emily is off this week. She gave herself the whole week to sign up for Obamacare <laughs> and to travel to another continent, possibly to find the Air Malaysia flight. I'm not sure. So we have a special guest this week, which who is uh, Megan McArdle, who is a columnist for Bloomberg View. She's also the author of the new book, which we're going to talk about, The Upside of Down. Uh, Megan, welcome to the GabFest. Hello. I am honored to be here. What is it like at Bloomberg View? At Bloomberg View, the water fountains, is there, are they filled with Perrier? And is there... <laughs> Is everything gilded? Is every like you eat a bite of something, but it's been gilded before you eat it? Well, it, you know, it's actually uh, it's dangerous to go into our office because there is so much free food that I literally like I'll be sitting at my desk for about five minutes, and then I will start hearing the lure of the animal crackers calling me from the. Is it Bloomberg floor. healthy free food? Does, um, it, does it reconcile with his own mission? Yeah, it is. It's actually, it's gotten much healthier over the years. So in the 90s, I actually, funnily enough, I installed some of the first uh, open Bloomberg terminals, which are the ones that run on a PC instead of these little like dedicated boxes they used to have that were just for Bloomberg. And so I went to their offices in the 90s and it was like waterfalls of nutter butters. And now it's <laughs> more like waterfalls of animal crackers and graham crackers and kind bars. And uh, there's fresh avocados and bananas every day. Um, it's really nice. So Augustus Gloop would have no... Because it sounded it like, sort good. of like, yeah, it sounded like, you know, the Willy Wonka's factory Is, first. Michael but, Bloomberg yeah. might be the most Willy Wonka-esque character of our time. But just... He's so public, uh, like, though. But he's like the Melba toast of Willy Wonka. Yes. I mean, it's not... Willy Wonka and like his f- Melba Toast Factory. Like flowing, fun, yes. good eats. It is a very fun place to work. I will, I will stick up for my, uh, my place of employment. Um, it is a lot of fun. And there is, in fact, Melba Toast in the, uh, in the cafeteria. <laughs> a flowing river of Melba Toast is not... Uh... All right. On this week's show, uh, Crimea is part of Russia. Ukraine is in retreat. Syria is in tatters. Is President Obama to blame? Two words for you. Jimmy Carter is the president weak. <laughs> Is the loss of Crimea a national or international disgrace? Then the Obamacare March 31st deadline loometh, and the administration is hoping to get 5 million or more people signed up for the Affordable Care Act, and also to cram in a ton of healthy, young invincibles at the last minute. How rocky is it for Obamacare? And then we will talk about Megan's book, The Upside of Down, which is all about failure as the key to success, which we know something about on this show. And we will have cocktail chatter. <laughs> we just fail every week and we the fail hope every that week. we'll succeed. And then one day success will follow. Two very quick announcements, just like at enticements, um, like little tastes of what is to come. We have two live shows coming up. One is certain, one is probable, but the probable one is soon. So I want to give a heads up. We are almost certainly going to be doing a live show in Austin, Texas on April 23rd. John Dickerson now writing, writing that down <laughs> for his calendar. We, uh, we don't have final details yet, but we are almost certainly going to do it in, sure in partnership yes. with our friends at Texas Tribune. So more details to come, but anyone in Texas or Louisiana or Oklahoma 
or Mexico. Mark your calendar, April 23rd. And then the big kahuna. We're going to do the long-awaited all GabFest together show, the GabFest roulette show on May 28th in New York City. Hang up and listen. The Cultural GabFest, us, Emily Yaffe, Dear Prudence is going to be there dispensing advice. It's going to be an incredible mega show. You do not want to miss it. We're going to mix up the lineups. It's going to be, I I can't even imagine how great it's going to be. So May 28th, mark it down. Is that you, Megan, marking it down? Yes. On your calendar to get up to New York that day? (laughs) Good. Russia annexed Crimea this week following an overwhelming vote for secession by the breakaway Ukrainian region. Russia also took over Ukrainian military facilities in Crimea, which Ukrainian soldiers did not try to block. The U.S. and Europe have responded cautiously, I would say would be the word, to the annexation. The U.S. imposing some sanctions on certain top Russians and generally muttering about the badness of of what Russia is doing. And Russia came right back and sanctioned John Boehner. John Boehner can no longer travel to Russia, as can a bunch of other senators have been also banned. McCain was also banned. McCain. He couldn't be happier. Not to be able to go to Russia. I would (laughs) like to be banned from traveling (laughs) to Russia. They won't be able to buy Stolknaya vodka. It's going to be... That's not even Russian, right? Doesn't it turn out not to be Russian? Oh, you know, it's I, like that... Estonian or something, but, it's, <laughs> but everyone associates it with Russia. So the Senator McCain said, I guess this means my spring break in Siberia is off, my Gazprom stock is lost, and my secret bank account in Moscow is frozen. So there are v- complaints from various corners of Washington and elsewhere that the loss of Crimea, the chaos in Syria, the appeasement of, of Tehran, it's all of a piece. It's all because of President Obama's incredibly weak foreign policy. Uh, the Chinese also are eating our lunch in the South China Sea. Jimmy Carter is invoked. John Dickerson, you were saying there are people who are now looking back fondly to the days of George W. Bush. So, John, start by just outlining what, what are the various groups criticizing the president and where, what are their basic beefs against him? Well, you know, so you've outlined the basic beef. The basic beef in its bluntest form is weakness incited this behavior. And you can say either it was Russia that reacted when the president was weak in Syria. You could say that the Iranians are taking lessons from the president's fishtailing on Syria policy. You can say that the Syrians took a lesson from Egypt when we said that if it's a military coup, uh, we'll withdraw our support from Egypt. And then we just defined it not as a military coup. That this president's reluctance, despite what he did in Afghanistan, despite Osama bin Laden, that his clear reluctance to get engaged in a military fashion other than through drones and through those kinds of attacks has called in all of this behavior. And that's the bluntest form. And what what I'm curious about is where specifically the criticisms are about things that he could have done or should do that represent a real policy distinction and difference. There's a lot of talk about weak and strong, but then they sort of stop there, and it and nobody gets more specific. What's interesting even about the bluntest form of this argument is that for a long time you had this, you know, president was essentially elected as a reaction to President Bush, and the question is whether this moment of flux actually means anything about a new conversation, a new national security conversation that doesn't share so much of the hangover from the Bush years. And then I'd say, finally, that you see not just the debate about Republicans versus the president, but you also see a conversation going on within conservative circles between somebody like, say, Rand Paul and somebody like Ted Cruz. They're fighting, although at the end of the day, again, at a policy level, I want to know specifically the thing that Ted Cruz would do that Rand Paul is against and vice versa to come up with some kind of distinction between the two. Because again, I think it actually, people get put in these categories, but I'm not sure the specificity of how they distinguish themselves on these specific countries. Well, Megan, let's give you a crack at that. So there's been a lot of sort of Monday morning quarterbacking of, oh, President Obama should have done this in the past. But looking at the current world situation, when you look at the critics of the president, you see real distinctions between what is being proposed by people on the right or left or libertarian right, the neocon right, and what the president himself proposes to do? Or is it all retrospective criticism? I think most of it, is, what I see at least, is, is retrospective criticism, is, is if Obama had not projected so much weakness, then now Russia would have been afraid to do this. And I think going forward, you know, realistically, who has a plan that's like, we should nuke Russia over this, or we should send troops there? No one really, right? No one is out there saying, hey, why don't we start a war with NATO, right? Bring them in. And it's kind of like the narcissistic teenage boy 
view of uh, geopolitics where like everything that happens is somehow happening in relationship to me rather than other countries have their own agendas and they might do things that have nothing to do with us. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has a lot of reasons that he would like to reestablish the old Russian empire. And in fact, everyone seems to forget that under George Bush, he went in and started taking parts of Georgia, right? It wasn't like just randomly invading other countries it had some sort of prophylactic effect where now Russia is too afraid to, we were, we were backing Georgia and they went in and took it anyway. And we didn't do anything because in fact, it didn't make a lot of sense to start a major conflict with a nuclear power over a very small area so, in, that's so, basically in their sphere of influence. So do you think that the, the claims, oh, President Obama was projecting weakness, is there anything to that claim? Or is that just rhetoric that people use because it's politically expedient? Is he projecting, in some sense, less willingness to go abroad and invade other countries than George Bush did? I mean, George Bush projected <laughs> yeah, I, a lot, I would of, say, yeah. a lot you of willingness would, that would have to, to do be that. Yes. Um, do I you? But I think then the question is, how much did that matter in this situation? And looking at what ha- happened under Bush, I have to say, I, I don't think it made that much difference. It probably makes more difference in the Middle East where it's considerably more plausible that we might actually go invade than it does in somewhere where we would be going in head to head against the world's other major nuclear power. Right. So, John, there's the Syria part of it, which is that the president was going to strike and didn't strike because the Russians came in and sort of said, oh, yeah, we'll take the camera yeah. weapons away. I mean, there are a couple of things that it's hard to, to weigh here. So we on the domestic front, we overvalue the power of words in what a president says or doesn't say. and We think it can do all kinds of magical things. So the inclination, in my view, is often to just sort of feel that way about foreign policy. I think over the years, though, you, you, in talking to diplomats, there is a sense in which what the American president says does matter. And the way in which people do push the envelope or not, or feel a sense of security. If the Saudis feel secure, they're not going to start making noises about wanting their own nuclear weapon. If the Israelis feel secure and that the U.S. has their back, they may not do things that cause uh, heartburn with respect to Iran if we're trying to work out our own little side deal with Iran. The signals that they get from what a president says publicly, sometimes you know, they go too far. When the president used the word crusade once in the context of Iraq, it haunted him for years. And the idea that he was on a religious crusade to destroy Islam. So with that long preamble, the president's muddled, fuzzy, confusing, fishtailing, to use the word again, approach to Syria does, I think, have consequences. The question is, how big are those consequences? So we know it's a failure. The question is, how much do those mistakes really affect what's happening right now? And then I think the, the final thing about foreign policy that always causes me difficulty, and in reading about this, people say, well, this is what Teddy Roosevelt did, and this is what Reagan did. And we know a lot of what they did because history has passed, and we know what they were doing behind the scenes. We really have no sense of what is going on behind the scenes here for good or ill. We know at, at, at during the, some of the demonstrations in Iran, the president got a lot of grief for not doing enough to push Iran. We've now subsequently found out that he was backing all kinds of covert operations to destroy their computer operations, to perhaps tacitly support the killing of their, their nuclear scientists. So there's a lot of stuff he was doing to try and change the, the dynamic in Iran that he couldn't talk about publicly. That missing piece of it, too, I think makes it hard to evaluate what's going on. Megan, you, you, you're going to represent the libertarian wing of the Republican Party for the purposes of this discussion <laughs> okay. because you're the closest we've got. <laughs> this is a new group. This is not a group that's had any swat within American foreign policy for a generation. I cannot for the life of me figure out what it is that the Rand Paul and whoever goes with Rand Paul, what they want. Is it isolationism or is it not isolationism? And is it Because it seems to me like you can't – you can't really be, if you're a Republican, you can't be for a kind of weak national defense. That's not allowed. Maybe they're for a weak national defense. I don't uh, know. I think they are. I mean, they're certainly substantially weaker than we have, um, substantially less intervention abroad. And I think that there's a couple of reasons that this has emerged. And the first is just that during the, the Cold War, libertarians opposed communism for fairly obvious reasons. And so they were held within this fairly hawkish coalition because at the time there really was this global war against a power that maybe not so much in the 80s, but certainly in the 50s and 60s was actually actively trying to undermine capitalist societies and so forth. And the second thing is that at this point, it really is a question of where are you going to take money from to keep the government from growing another 10% of GDP. And I think a lot of Republicans are just looking at this and saying, well, 
we're not going to get Social Security, but we probably could get something on defense. And I think that was where you saw Democrats made this huge strategic mistake. And I did call this one at the time. I don't know it was cut, but I said this. They were figuring that if uh, with the sequester cuts, oh, Republicans will just be too afraid. Right. They won't let this happen. Right. And I said, no, they're like, you could feel it when you talk to Republicans is that they were ready. If it was that or go after Medicare, they were just going to let the defense cuts happen. Right. Right. And and your point about communism is a good one because I think there is this strain. I mean, some neocons who explicitly want it, but then just a sentimentality like, oh, remember the good old days of the Cold War? And like, wouldn't it be nice clarifying to have a nice moral enemy? And Putin is clearly a, a monster and his, his Russia, Russia is a terrible country. But there, we are not engaged in a grand ideological battle with Russia. Russia is a, is a kind of regional, an unpleasant regional empire, but it is not threaten global order or to, that we're not dividing the world up. So I don't think anyone feels like for the sake of national security, we have to right. We have to contain the Russian if, bear. If we don't stop it at the Crimea, they're going to be yes. pouring through the Fulda Gap and we'll all yes, be speaking f- Russia and lining up for bread within yes. months. How are our battle tanks? <laughs> I, I think John, that, what is the state of America's battle tanks? You know, it's, uh, they're poised. The M1 ready. Abrams. I think but we, we don't do the Wolverines, don't we? I mean, if we yeah. get here, we're going to... Yeah. <laughs> Everybody needs to arm themselves. In Nicaraguan, uh, I saw Nicaraguan <laughs> paratroopers outside our door the other day. You know, I think the... As this conversation is now busted open, again, as unclear as it is, I think the president bears some of the responsibility for the grief he's taking because both when he came to office and then even when he was in office, he did have – there was a certain sort of smug self-satisfaction about his ability to kind of remove all the wrinkles from the rug in the world because he wasn't the kind of dumb, no – foreign trips before running for president kind of binary fellow that George Bush was. And there was this sense that a man of the world who had lived to other places and who'd, you know, taken those one or two trips with Dick Luger was going to have a kind of special sort of silver surfer ride through all the difficulties in the world. And he faces now the complexities. And so the question is, what's going to, if you look at the polling, Hillary Clinton does better on the questions of strength and world leader than this president now does. So how does she or somebody else running, what like posture do they take when they come in? And are we basically going to have a, question, a discussion about foreign policy that's all about posture? Because in the end, when Rand, I've said this before, but when Rand Paul and Ted Cruz have a fight about what to do in Crimea, they actually both believe essentially the exact same thing. But because Ted Cruz needs to make a distinction, he talks about Rand Paul's lack of, you know, his isolationism, even though they have no substantive disagreement on the actual underlying policy. To your point about the the silver surfer and attempting to, to smooth out the world is that we, most of us are trapped or not most of us, but plenty of people are trapped in this idea, which you nodded at at the beginning here, Megan, of, I mean, you talked about it the, as the narcissistic boy, that the, that we everything is around the United States, but there's also this notion that the United States can kind of fix everything or has to play a role in everything. They're the and narcissistic it, teenage boy or the narcissistic teenage boy's parents and like setting a good example and and encouraging, encouraging them along to do the right thing. And like they're not, other countries are not our children and they don't, I mean, they, they obviously react to what we do, but. Right, but it, the, this cold, the Cold War Yes. Where that we had allies who basically felt like we've got to stay within the, the protective hug of the narcissistic teenage boy of the United States. We, we really did. Every decision we made really had this huge influence. And now it's much less so. But we, we haven't gotten it out of our heads that everything we do doesn't matter as much. So there are things that we can do. I don't think it's – to me, the conclusion is not we shouldn't do anything, but it's that we have to be really careful about figuring out what it is that we can do productively. For example, I think – if you look at the case of Poland versus Ukraine, Poland is a country which was folded into to Europe and, and folded into the European economy, has thrived, prospered, incredibly strong, democratic. It's a you know great ally to the West in all respects. Ukraine is not. Aren't there things that we would want to do to encourage Ukraine to, to sort of move in that direction, to be less corrupt, to build the less the democratic institutions and more the capitalist institutions, real capitalist institutions rather than oligarchical capitalist institutions in that country. That seems to me like something you could genuinely positively try to do. I think you definitely, we should totally try, but I think it's actually, I actually write about this in the book, you know, in the 90s when we helped Russia privatize and Ukraine and all of the other countries that have been in the Soviet bloc, there was this idea among, I mean, (laughs) libertarians certainly had it of, well, 
markets are natural, and then the government is coming in and screwing them up. So if we just take that interfering government out, you just pull it away, and wow, markets are there, right? Because they're natural, and it turns out that's not true. There's this immense amount of kind of cultural, you might call it like the operating system of a society that has to be there. And in Poland, they were relatively late, right? They still had middle-class people who remembered capitalism. And in Ukraine and in the Soviet Union, they didn't. No one remembered what it was like to live in, in a free market society where there's a lot of trust and just basic kind of norms about what you should do and what it what a, a legitimate exchange is. And can I give away your hotel room if someone bids in more money for it or what have you? None of that stuff was there. And so we should totally encourage it. But it's hard to do. I mean, I think there's helpful stuff with Transparency International where you're seeing in Latin America, that people are saying, you know what, like, I want to be on this list of top great people improving. Um, you see it in like Costa Rica and Mexico. And that's really hopeful. And we can do stuff like that. But we Fundamentally, they have to decide, the people of the Ukraine have to decide that they want a non-corrupt, more open society. We're, so we're having a big foreign policy conversation because big things are happening in the world that put that before us. But I think there are also other things contributing to this. One is that the budget fights have kind of cooled for a moment. The other thing is that we've got Republicans who were locked out of the foreign policy conversation for a little while at the national level because of the Bush years now feel a moment that they can gain the upper hand, which they've had for such a long time in the national conversation. And then I think finally, you have this distinguishing fight within conservative ranks, where each where it's useful for different potential presidential candidates to distinguish themselves from each other on foreign policy, because on other issues, they're all so close. So there's a reason that you might have this conversation more than normal. But at the end of the day, isn't it true still, Megan, I'll ask you this, if fundamentally, it, everybody still wants the economy to get better and fixed. And so I wonder if we're having a hot moment and then it's just going to dissipate and we'll be back soon enough to talking about the economy because that's ultimately where people still want to be as a country. Essentially, people are isolationist right now. And while they may think the president looks weak, they don't want to go rumbling into these countries. And so that while we're having a moment, it'll dissipate and we'll be back to the economy soon enough. And my take is that, yeah, people before this happened, most people knew Crimea, if they knew it at all, as the place where Florence Nightingale got her start as a nurse, right? And they fundamentally, I don't think they care about it nearly as much as they care about whether they have a job and their brother-in-law has a job and they feel like they're not on the verge of economic disaster all the time. And so right now, nothing's really happening in the domestic front. And so there's an opening for this to become a major issue. I do think that, like, all else equal, people would really rather Russia were not resurgent. Although I always wonder, I realize I'm now older than the median American. And, of course, I grew up thinking that I would – yeah, the median American is only 38 years old. How's, how It's really disturbing. But I grew up, of course, being afraid that I was going to be nuked and I was going to die. And in the, in the – you know, with the whole Cold War looming over my childhood. And I wonder if people who were born in, in 1992 – even really care if Russia has a resurgent empire or not. Yeah. Do you know the median American? I invited the median American out for dinner and, and, um, <laughs> and she was busy. Um, it's because she doesn't live here. I, John, I think your framing of that is really true. It also, I think, is that Republicans are looking for affirmative positions to have. They have a lot of anti-positions, right? Notably on Obamacare and immigration. But this is a place where they don't have to define themselves that actively. They don't have to be held to any position, but they can take an affirmative, like, we are aggressive, we are confident, we want to project American power. This week, Jimmy Carter, like president, doesn't. And it doesn't cost them anything, and it allows them to, to have something. It's, it's like high rhetorical gain, low actual cost. So it's very valuable politically. Let's hear from our sponsor this week. We are sponsored by Stamps.com. It is tough deciding where to focus your resources and grow your business, if, especially if you're like a party like the Republican Party. One thing we can tell you is that you do not need to waste valuable time going to the post office for mailing and shipping. You can use Stamps.com to access all the services of the post office right from your desk 24-7. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can get postage for any letter or package, any class of mail, and all for a fraction of the cost of an expensive postage meter. With Stamps.com, you'll never have to go to the post office again, so you can spend your time where it matters most, focused on your business. Right now, if you use our promo code GABFEST, you'll get a special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. 
March 31st is the Obamacare sign-up deadline. If you haven't registered, you may be subject to penalties. What penalties are you subject to? Is that, it's like if you're not there, you're subject to penalties? So is there something else? It's complicated, but if you don't have insurance by March 31st and you have not had insurance up until March 31st, then the penalty is either $95 or 1% of your income, whichever is higher. And a lot of people are are misled about this and they think it's $95 and they're in for a nasty shock come tax time 2015. So if you've registered, congratulations. You are one of about 4.5 or so, 4.5 million Americans who've signed up so far. Uh, it's actually just 5 million. Yeah. 5 million? They just said 5, 5 million. million like two days ago. Oh, yeah. 5 million. And there are millions of others through the Medicaid expansion, right? I was trying to get the number. No. That includes. That includes the Medicaid expansion? Right? No. Yeah. No. 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 There are millions oh. of others. But the Medi- it, so it's complicated because this isn't new people. Like the Medicaid number includes people who are just renewing Medicaid coverage they already had or people who were previously eligible and just decided to apply. I mean, they get like a million – they get more than a million churn every month just naturally before Obamacare. Um, and it's also not clear how many of those people – first of all, how many of the five million have paid – and then second of all, how many of them had insurance before? Uh, we think that a lot of the people who signed up before December are probably people who had insurance, either had their ca- policies canceled or were just looking to get a subsidy because they're now eligible for one. Um, and that most of those people were pr- – we don't really know, but we think that most of those people already had insurance. The the people signing up now are more likely to be uninsured. So – sorry, on the Medicaid question, I'm still puzzled. So the five million does include people who no five million I mean, is just exchange just signups. Exchanges. Yeah. So uh, do we know a, the number on Medicaid? It's over six or seven million, but again, the counting is not good on that. Six or and seven so, supplemental to what there was. So no, six or, no, no, that's, that's just the the, surely the number of people who have signed up for Medicaid in that time. And since normally millions of people would have been signing up for Medicaid, we don't know what the difference is. There's been estimates that it's. It was, as of January, about 2 million additional Medicaid signups. It could be more than that. It's all It's going to take a long time to sort this out. I think the best number we have is that if you look at the Gallup poll and the uninsured, there's been a decline in the number of the uninsured. There was originally a decline from 18% to 16%, but that 18% looks like it was an outlier. It had never been that high before. It was just one quarter. And the others... Each quarter on either side of it was 17.1. So if I think we if we assume that 17.1 is about the right number, looks like about 1.1% of the population, which would be 3 to 3.5 million people, uh, have gained insurance as a so result of So that's the Delta. That would be, yeah, that is my best guess at the Delta. And so some of the people who would have signed up for Obamacare are people who were on individual plans and moving, to, moving to right. an Obamacare plan or people who maybe don't like their employers. Well, no, if you like your if you're on your employer's plan, you're kind of stuck with it. Uh, no, you could, it's you complicated. Could. And now if your employer's plan costs you more than 10.5% of your income, then you can switch to Obamacare and be eligible for subsidies. So, it's I mean, this whole thing is is really the decision tree <laughs> looks like one of those like 9,000-year-old redwoods with 80 million branches. Now, one last complication here. On the Gallup number, it's just whether you were insured or not insured. So that could capture some people who discovered they were eligible for Medicaid, signed up for it. Right. Because there was – there's that woodwork yes. effect. So right? that's the woodworkers. It's really like, – there's actually like three different numbers, right? There's the reduction in the number of uninsured – there's the reduction in the number of uninsured that actually came because of new eligibility created by Obamacare rather than people who simply realized that they were eligible for Medicare. Because there had always been a lot of people who were eligible and didn't sign up, but were functionally covered because if, say, they went to the emergency room, the first thing the emergency room does is sign you up for Medicaid. They have staffers who are just dedicated basically to doing that. And then there's the number of people who have put a policy in their cart and or signed up for Medicaid. And that last number is very large, but it doesn't necessarily tell us a huge amount. So, Megan, you wrote a column for Bloomberg View this week about the relative elderliness of the population that's, that has signed up through, for the exchanges. The Obamacare initial desires were for about 40 percent. Yes, 38.56 They want 38.5 yeah. to be <laughs> under 35? Over 18 and under 35. Okay. Because uh, that's the group that basically uses no health care. So you take premiums from them every month. They don't use health care. And that basically, with the, the way that Obamacare is set up, that subsidizes the policies for everyone else. And and in fact, the percentage of 18 to 35-year-olds who in in the uh, exchanges are what now? It's uh, right as of the end of February, 
it was 25%, which had been the worst case scenario that that people had been talking about as like, well, we know this isn't going to happen. But just, you know, I mean, look, this is how bad it could get, but it's not going to get that bad. And also not to just be a pain in the ass about the numbers, but the 38.5 target for this to work they have to have paid, right? Because they yeah. have to be in the insurance system for the insurance companies to say, okay, our mix and pool of people that we're covering is healthy. So that's the 38.5, which is people who have paid and are locked in. The 25% number, we have no idea how many people have just filled out the website but haven't paid in the end. And since for a lot of those people, it's going to be nine, it's going to be whatever, the $100 a month that they weren't paying before and they think they're invincible and they may not have the $100, the gap there, right. which can be big. I mean, some of the figures I saw was like the gap, you know, these are people guessing, but it was like 10 to 20% maybe. So it had people, are, when you talk paying, to insurers, right. you hear estimates of between 15 to 25% okay. is... 50 to 25%. Uh, and then there's additional attrition the second month. So that's just the first month. And then apparently, again, this is all very anecdotal, whatever, but Bob Lazuski, who's an insurance expert, who's been talking a lot about this, presumably at the behest of the people he consults for, <laughs> um, said that there's additional attrition in the second month of 2 to 5%. However, you know, a lot of the non-payment numbers that we have come from December. Right. And what I think is possible, although I do not by any means know that this is true, is that you may have had people who created three or four accounts and then only ended up paying the premiums on one of those. So it might be lower now. We just it's it's so speculative at this point, but there is some level of attrition. Even in Massachusetts, about five percent of people didn't end up paying for so the policies. I know nothing about the insurance industry. I would have thought that if the numbers were catastrophic, there were, we would hear more panic from the insurers that they would be freaking out because they're the ones who are going to be paying out to all these these insured people, all these sick, elderly, non-18 to 35-year-old insured people. Is there such panic in the offing? Well, not exactly because the government well, the, the has corridors, all these risks. The, cars, yeah. the risk <laughs> corridors. The risk because they're all they, in Lexus Basically, Lincoln. if the losses are big, the government will eat about 80% of the losses. So um, that's pretty large. Although the government now says this is budget neutral but has not released any mechanism that would make this budget neutral. The Hill had a piece uh, yesterday that basically said that in some areas, premiums may triple on the exchanges and that insurers are actually freaking out and think and don't know why the, the administration is saying that premiums are going to be low. That said, of course, they're engaged in a, a lengthy negotiation with the administration to get more goodies, mm-hmm. right? They want more risk corridor. They want rules that are friendlier to them and in various other ways, basically get have government payments funneled to them in order to offset all these losses. And so right now, they're engaged in this kind of kabuki theater where you say, you know, I'm in a populist swing state. Insurance premiums are going to triple. Wouldn't you like to make yeah. the, uh, the the risk corridors a little more generous, Mr. President? So it's not clear to me, at least, how much of this is strategic and how much of this is their actual plans. That's right. And one, one other thing I would add is just to, in talking to somebody who worked with in the industry, they said, you know, as much of a pain in the ass as this has been and as much as we've been clashing with the administration, we still do want all these policies. Right. So they want all – I mean, the whole reason they were behind it in the first place is it means lots and lots of new people coming in to sign up. So they do still want those people to sign up, and so they're not going to do... Now, we may hear something quite different after the March 31st deadline. So the president has been making these these slightly desperate... It's like a guy who, who's dating a woman who's too young for him kind of moves, the, the Between Two Ferns appearance, and then he gave an interview to WebMD. He will not give an interview to the New York Times, but he gives an interview to WebMD in this... Attempt, and, and I guess, young, young people. Well, I think WebMD go, probably asked him fewer hard questions yeah. than the New York Times would. Yeah. Like. yeah, and Ellen. He goes on Ellen. I mean, it's this, this way of attempting to reach the 18 to 35-year-olds. Do you – first of all, do you guys think it, it works? It, ha- it has an effect. I mean, the Between Two Ferns appearance clearly increased traffic to the healthcare.gov website. But also, is it seemly for him to be doing this? I was actually shocked. They got their biggest traffic day ever after a funnier die video on Obamacare went right. viral. I mean, so I guess it works. I, I don't if it were me, I probably wouldn't try to reach I don't know what the kids these days do with their Snapchatting and whatever it is, but I probably wouldn't have chosen Ellen as like my my vehicle to try to reach the young folk. You understand why the president wants to go and sell his his major policy achievement. I do wonder if you he isn't getting a little overexposed with all the quasi hip right. things where it actually then becomes a joke and backfires. 
I think a Snapchat uh, healthcare policy would be great. Like you get the policy and then it dissolves six seconds later and it's gone. <laughs> it's like I had it. <laughs> um, do you guys think the young Invincibles, the non-Obamacare signing up Invincibles, who are go- I guess are going to take a tax hit, but do you think of them as they are prudent, uh, penny-pinching, smart planners or are they antisocial, selfish, and ruining the society we live in? I know your answer, Megan. I actually have no, I, I I don't know. I don't know. They seem, from that millennial study that Pew did, which I looked at, but mostly from the political side, I think it's possible to be a good, upstanding citizen interested in the progress of mankind, wanting to help your community, being engaged in the challenges of your day, and still think, like, why am I going to pay 100 bucks a month for this crappy product? It's actually a lot more than that. I yeah. mean, they, so we looked at buying right, insurance. That's on right, that's right. I know, I'm buying into the spin by saying $100 um, a month. You know, the problem is if you're young and single, the the subsidies phase out at a lot lower than I think most people thought. They fa- start phasing out at $25,000 a year in income. So you can be making $31,000 a year, be eligible for essentially no subsidy, and have to pay, say, two or $300 a month off of, you know, when I made $31,000 a year, I did not have several hundred dollars a month lying around just waiting to be used for something else. And it wasn't because, like, I had premium cable and the right. huge cell phone packages because, like, I like to eat and buy yeah. Metro cards to go to my job. Right. Um, so, you know, the people who email me, and obviously I have not jumped on them and started interrogating them, like Dave Ramsey, about what they could be cutting out of their budget. But they just say, look, I I had insurance before and I can't afford this. I could afford $98 a month and $250 a month is just not in the – I can't do it. But in theory, if you're making 31000 a year, you'll pay three – well, I guess your your taxable income will be somewhat less than that. So, yeah. you'll be, But you'll pay $250 fine into – and you'd, then be, you'd be paying about a, a $300 fine, which is a lot less. I mean, that's but one then, month But then it will be $600 fine the next year. Right. And but then it's still less than their fine. Own. It's still less than the insurance. Right. But right? you don't get anything for it, right? That is totally true. But they, if you don't use insurance, then like I, – look, I tell people when they ask me, I tell them buy insurance, right? Even if it's expensive, you need the catastrophic protection. But at the same time, if they say to me like just the numbers don't work out – I don't. I, I right. have a hard time saying like you bad person. Right. You ought to be buying insurance. Do, do, what do you guys make of the Republican gestures towards a plan? They haven't actually clarified into anything that is remotely like a plan or a bill. It's sort of like the phasers, whatever they threw up a few weeks ago about immigration, where they were like, "Oh, we're going to have these immigration ideas," but they never came to anything. I mean, do you think they're, that the Republicans are actually going to clarify around a set of principles, well, or they, even like a bill? If they have the House and Senate, I mean, next year after the elections. But do you think there's an agreement about principles that they could get to? Well, there's an agreement of principles, but then there's an agreement about principles on immigration, too. But I think the next step, that'll be fascinating. I mean, because if they take control of the Senate, which there's probably now a little bit more of a 50, more than a slightly more than a 50 percent chance that they'll do that, then you really do have to do something. You have to put something into legislative language. And that, I think, will be a complex and really interesting uh, discussion and fight. Are you Um, impressed by what you've heard about it, Megan? They're still debating, right? Like, there's still a big debate within the Republican Party about how to approach this, whether to approach it, what specific things you want to try to do. Paul Ryan came out with premium support that went down like a lead balloon. I, I think they're still talking. And fundamentally, it's a hard conversation. The reason Obamacare is so messed up, right, is that the zone of politically possible things you can do in the healthcare space is very small, and none of them make any sense. So, it, you know, like, I have to do a plan that's cheap and doesn't take anything away that anyone already has. Like, that's not, and also doesn't offend any of the providers. Well, that's not really realistic. And Republicans are running into the same problem Democrats had. Democrats had a kind of, you know, zealots, like we're going over the hill, guys. And if half of you die, that's too bad. But we're going to take that hill. And, and Republicans don't feel that way. So I I really don't know what, where it's going to end up. One last thing about the Invincibles is that in the pre-rollout of the website, the administration's plan for getting the Invincibles, which was their number one thing to do yeah. because of that high number. This was the thing, the prize they had their eye on that they kept talking about was value, that the Invincibles would pay money if they thought they were getting a product of value. And that's why the website crack up was such a big problem because because it just basically said this product is bunk. And it wasn't the product that was bad or leave aside the question whether the product was bad or not. The website was bad and that just conveyed right. lack of value. Right. And so like 
with this core group, it like injected just exactly the wrong thing, which is what they're still battling against. Although one piece of data that uh, I would really like to have, and I don't think we'll, we'll get it when a republic when there's a Republican president, yeah, right. whatever that is, <laughs> is how many people are getting all the way through yeah. and then seeing the prices and just bailing. Because that's because it's astonishing how many visits they have versus how many people have signed right. up. And I would really like to know what, you know, is it price or is it something else that is? What's the page time? Like we can yeah. see on our stories, you know, how long somebody's hanging out there. Sadly a little, they, right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Really? 12 seconds? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> our new plan is to charge them $230 a month. <laughs> so let's turn to our next topic. Megan, you are Megan McArdle. Let me say your last name again so people who are now on Amazon searching for your book can find it. You have a new book. It's called The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. Weirdly, Charles Kenny, a friend of mine, has a book of the same title <laughs> I that's also out know right Charles. now. Uh, Charles and I know each other. And funnily enough, we had no idea until the publicity blitz for his book started uh, because his book came out a month before mine. And so then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Where's, what happened? Yes. Um, but his book is very different. I'm hoping uh, that after people have read both, and I highly recommend that you buy Charles' excellent book, uh, that I will be among the top five books called The Upside of Down. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I read a book called Good Book, and there's like 10 books called Good Book. And someone wrote me the other day and asked, and sort of asked my permission. I, he was he's writing a book, and he's like, I, "I really like to call my book good book. Would you be okay with it?" And I was like, "Yes, I stole it from ten other people." So <laughs> not you to should mention steal the Bible. Me. Not to mention, well, it was a book about the Bible. So <laughs> my uh, my book is called On Her Trail. There is also like this Harlequin romance, of, <laughs> like this dude with his you know with a cowboy that hat and no good, shirt. Did you get to meet Fabio? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's quite a uh, uh, yeah. There's On Her Trail, and then there's Hot On Her Trail, which is a Another one that comes up in searches, so don't get confused, <laughs> or it'll get very Freudian very fast. Um, all right, but let's actually talk about your book, which is about, well, failing well. So you talk about failure as something which is a key to individual success, to corporate success, to success of nations, and in yes. particular, the United States. We'll talk about that. But what? let's talk about that adverb, well. So what does failing well as opposed to failing, which we're all familiar with failing? Well, I mean, you can think about this uh, like a bad breakup, right? You've seen the people who have a bad breakup and then they spend the next three years holed up in their apartment, watching a lot of television, eating a lot of takeout and mourning what went on. And I've been that person, by the way, so I don't want to sound like I'm I'm being all superior here. Uh, And in fact, that story is in the book deftly woven in with GM just to show you how, how versatile the whole thing is. There's... I think three main principles of failing well. And the first is that I'm not trying to say that failure won't hurt because that's a lie. And I'm not like cheerily, you're just going to, you know, get fired and get up the next day. You're like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, like, um, however, after time has passed, it's kind of shocking how many people will see. You, they say the words, the best thing that ever happened to me. And what comes before that was like getting left at the altar or getting cancer or all of these things that you wouldn't think. And it really is true. And it's not just spin. The great thing about failure is that because it takes something away from you, you suddenly have more freedom than you did before. You suddenly have more options because you don't have to worry about this thing that you were trying to protect. Freedom really is just another word for nothing left to lose. So (laughs) the first thing is that actually you you really have to recognize that you failed. And this sounds really dumb and obvious, but if you've ever – bet in a company that was kind of slowly winding down into disaster or bet in a relationship that was doing the same thing. or You know that, in fact, it takes an astonishingly long time for people. Everyone else outside is saying, this is not working. Clearly, we are doomed. And you inside are like, no, it looks okay to me. And so first, quickly recognizing that you failed, being actually proactive and looking out for, have is this working? And then the second thing is, once it's happened... Instead of just kind of getting into the shame and blame thing of, oh, I must be the worst person in the, in the universe, our company is really stupid, it was always doomed, et cetera, is saying, okay, well, why didn't that work? Um, you want to be able to identify before you move on what actually went wrong and what the mistake was, not in a kind of flagellating yourself forever because, in fact, every successful company, every successful person has some pretty spectacularly amazing failures in their past. And then the third thing is actually moving on. Again, all of this sounds really obvious, except no one does it. So like, you you really do need to actually lay out, okay, first, be alert. Is this failing? Is it working? Second of all, you know, why didn't that work? And third of all, really say, okay, that happened. 
I can't fix it. I can't make it unhappen. What I can do is take the lessons and move forward. And and that also goes for public policy. So I, I spend the last two chapters of the book talking about two areas we really don't like to talk about, which is bankruptcy and, and prison. And how do you take these bad things that have happened and make them as low cost as possible and orient the people that they happen to or who did them, frankly, towards the future instead of the bad thing that they did in the past? There's a strain, particularly, I think, on the American right of real unforgiveness around people who commit crime, right? Mm -hmm. And certain kinds of mistakes you're not allowed to get past in American life and certain kinds you are. Bankruptcy, you're allowed to to have the stain of a corporate bankruptcy or a personal bankruptcy on your record and, and recover from that. But crime, you really aren't. How can we balance that? How can we not put red letters on people who really messed up? really tough. This is the toughest thing that I come up against thinking about public policy. I mean, I don't think it's just on the right. I think that you see this when people talk about Iraq, right? As the Media Matters today published a list of people who had been wrong about Iraq. Funnily enough, all of them were conservative columnists. And they were like, why are these people employed? (laughs) Well, come on. (laughs) Yes, they were wrong about a big thing. But saying that therefore they should have been fired and like now working in a Denny's somewhere seems to me it's not like the left never got any big issues wrong, right? And there were also people on the left, obviously, who did. It's a really common instinct. And to some extent, it's fair when you say, if I'm going to hire someone, would I like to know that they're a felon? Well, yes, because they have a higher chance of stealing from me or, or being violent or something. But at the same time, what we've now created is a group of people who are unemployable or who are only employable at an extremely low level. And when you do read about post-prison success stories, almost invariably, they work in like the prison rehabilitation industry, right? They're now doing a prison ministry or they're doing something that rehabilitates inmates or they're doing a halfway house. And that's great. But I would love to hear of prison recovery stories where now he's working at a Fortune 500 company and has moved, right? That never, you never hear that story. That's too bad because lots of people make mistakes, even bad mistakes. Lots of people do bad things in their past and then they change (laughs) and they learn to be better and we're not giving them that chance. And so one of the things that is hopeful is the program that I looked at in the book is this program called Hope. It's in Hawaii. You really don't want people to go to prison. That's the first thing. Like the first thing we can do is keep as many people out of prison as possible because there's research showing that when you send people to prison as opposed to giving them a suspended sentence like probation, you get worse outcomes. Uh, It's not really surprising. You take them out of the labor force. You take them away from their family. You take them away from their social connections. And you send them to a place where they can spend all their time with criminals. And that is a great place for learning to be a better criminal, right? And it's also, it makes them resentful of the system and so forth. So this is a system where it's not less punishment. And this was the innovative thing. It's, it's sort of liberal ends and conservative means. It's actually more punishment, but it's smaller punishment. So every single time you violate any of your probation requirements, you go to jail. You only go for a few days. And what they've done is cut the number of people who just flunk probation and ended up in prison in half. It's cheaper for the taxpayer. It's better for the – like, there are very few win-win-win public policy things. This is one of them. And it's by no means the end. I mean, I think you also have to look at what things are crimes. I, I as a libertarian, right, I think we should legalize drugs and get rid of those black markets, not because most people are in prison for nonviolent drug offenses. That's not true. But because the black markets create a lot of incentives and money for committing violent, terrible crimes that then, you know – end up with people in jail. One thing I would just push back on, David, is on <clears throat> on the right. At CPAC this year, you had a lot of these um, discussion groups where everybody would leave the room and people would say really interesting things. And one of them was a discussion with Bernie Carrick, Rick Perry, and Grover Norquist about getting rid of mandatory minimums or shrinking them and creating job training in prisons so that you didn't have these situations where people were ruined for life because of their time in prison. I know, prison. But John, I mean, be honest. The move to stigmatize prison, to not allow prison, you know, to take away felons' voting rights mm-hmm. for longer sentences has come out of the American right much more than out of the American left. Well, right. So, there, so I, if the extent- there's countervailing forces... Great. Right. But you never would have in the years where Bill Clinton had to run as a pro death penalty Democrat to get over that stigma. You wouldn't have seen a symposium in the most conservative gathering where people were talking about reducing sentences, finding ways to deal with recidivism, finding ways to deal with people and allow them a second chance in life. One of the reasons they're doing it, in addition to uh, whatever 
views they may have about people's sense of redemption is that since you had mandatory minimums, costs of keeping prisons going has been a backbreaker for a lot of these states. Right. Let me go with your example, Megan. Let's go to another aspect of it. If you think about the global financial crisis and you think about the issues of moral hazard where you allow companies to be made whole, you have Mm -hmm. insurance on policies, you have government bailouts. When when is that good and when is that a mistake? <laughs> I keep getting kicked out of the libertarian movement for this. I supported TARP. I supported the bailouts. I still support them, not because I love bankers, but because if you read the literature of the Great Depression, which is what happens when banks are just allowed to collapse in, in that kind of catastrophic way, it's so much worse for the ordinary people who did not create the crisis. The Great Depression was really terrible, and I think we needed to do what we did to avoid that. And I also think that, you know, frankly... Dick Fold, yes, he is not actually destitute, but he lost 95% of his money and he's not happy about that. And he doesn't really, and he's sort of a, a little bit of a pariah and he's as unhappy about it as we would if be if we lost 95% of our money, even though we would not be as poor as like farmers in Tanzania, right? So it's not that I don't think moral hazard is a problem. I do think that moral hazard is a problem. I think it, you can see it operating in, in the spreads that banks are now paying for their credit. I think moral hazard is a problem on welfare. I think it's a problem with bankruptcy. I think it's a problem with unemployment. I think it is true in all of these areas that if you make something cheaper, you will get more of it and that some people will abuse the system. That is, But I think you can worry too much about that and you end up cutting off your nose to spite your face. And I think that with the 2005 bankruptcy reform, that's what we did. And I think that that is what a lot of the people who were pushing to just let the banks fail, let the banks fail. I think it would have been cutting off our nose. Uh, the 2005 face. bankruptcy reform did that how? I, I'm not. So okay, yeah, sorry, my, I forget. My number sorry. one piece of bankruptcy legislation. <laughs> well, it's uh, so in 2005 we did a tough bankruptcy reform that just tightened up in general. It required more paperwork to file. Okay. It required attorneys to sign off. It just made bankruptcy more expensive. It actually didn't do nearly as much as I feared, but in general, you know. Over abuse of bankruptcy had really been a problem, and the place I would have expected to sh- it to show up would be that credit would be too expensive, right? And that's that was not a problem we had in two thousand five. And so I think, you know, you you fixate on the small number of abusers, and then that tends to blind you to the large amount of damage that you can do by trying to get those last few abusers out of the system. One of the reasons I love this idea is that if you destigmatize failure, you encourage risk taking that's positive and get all kinds of great. Um, benefits, which I'm addicted to. Like in the business world, the notion that failing and failing fast and learning from it and moving forward is you're right in the middle of the conversation. Right. In politics, the opposite. You're never allowed to admit failure. If you had a failure, you just move along quickly. You don't say, you know, I failed. I learned this thing. I moved on. Right. Is that is that right? And do you think there's any way we can fix that? Well, I mean, I think in some ways you look at like Barack Obama, right, who was anointed in part because he had no track record, right? Like he he hadn't done anything anyone could point to and say that didn't work. I think I would have liked Barack Obama more as a president had he spent like four more years kind of getting his butt kicked, trying to get actual legislation passed, seeing what worked and what didn't. I think he would have been a more effective there were. I'm not saying that, you know, everything that has happened is his fault or whatever, but I just think in general, like he might have been more effective had he had a little bit more time to kind of season in in failure the way most politicians have, even though they can't admit it. But yes, I think that this is true. We, we don't want anyone to admit any weakness at all, no matter how small. And the end result is, I mean, like George Bush's alcoholism, right? Now, something you should know because alcoholics relapse and so forth. On the other hand, the idea that you would say, well, he was an alcoholic 20 years ago and therefore obviously can't be president seems crazy to me and actually quite un-American. I mean, we are a nation of failures. We are the people who showed up here because things were not working out wherever we were and then kept moving west often because it didn't work out here either. I mean, so we should be much more forgiving of our politicians than we are and we should regard it the way Silicon Valley does as Obviously not someone who just blindly does stupid things for no reason. You don't want that person. But the world is complicated. You're going to try some things that don't work. And we should respect that as kind of what Theodore Roosevelt called the man in the arena, who's actually out there trying it rather than wanting to punish that person for having made a mistake. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Amen, sister. The book is The Upside of Down. Why Failing Well is the Key to Success, Megan McArdle, who weirdly does not have two C's in her no, last name. It's, which uh, I, was, I was like Googling you today. I was like, yeah. what is going on? She's not anywhere. It's very common, actually. So it's derived from an Irish name, and the, I can't even 
try to pronounce it because it's got like 97 cons- consonants in it when it's spelled in Irish, but it starts with an A. So uh, it's it's the uh, the long 700-year decline from this guy who is around sometime in the, the late medieval period. The Ardles. The Ardles. The, it actually, it's like Ariel. It's like A-I-R-G-H-E-A-L-L. <laughs> like it's just, I have no idea how it ended up as an Ardle, but... You're an Ardle. <laughs> Let's move on to cocktail chatter when you're an Ardle or an Ardle or an Addle. John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? Mine uh, is another one of these weird uh, historical... Oh, I'm going to sit back with my Rabbit pipe. holes. No, no, this is not as good as some of the other ones. So the other day I came across the um, an account of the invention of the hot air balloon, which is itself a matter of some debate. What struck me was that, so these two French brothers, Jacques and Joseph uh, Montgolfier, which looked like Montgolfer, in uh, 1783 basically invented the hot air balloon as far as the Europeans were concerned. I thought that feels like awfully late. When you think of the properties of fire, when you put a piece of paper in the fire and watch it burn, it lifts up and you think like, okay, there's something going on there. You'd think it wouldn't take all the way to the 18th century to figure that out. I then learned that actually there's a huge debate about who was the first one to create the, the hot air balloon. And the Chinese in like the third century were, had created sky lanterns and the Portuguese did these anyway. But that's not the interesting thing. Let's go back to the French guys. What was amusing to me about them was that they were makers of paper. And they uh, – one of the two brothers, I can't remember. I think it was Jacques was sitting there and noticed – he was thinking about how to get – to how to attack Gibraltar because it was impenetrable. And watching pipers burn in the fire and saw it rise and said, ah, we can create a balloon that will do this. OK. So he creates the first balloon and they get it to fly into the air and it lands and like – a group of peasants attacks the balloon and destroys it because they think it's either one of two things. The moon has come down <laughs> or it's a monster. And so they like destroy it with pitchforks. First thing, it was just amusing that they did this. But the second thing is, can you imagine what would be the equivalent in our lives, something that would be so fantastical that your reaction would be to potentially like try and destroy it? I mean, if somebody just appeared out of thin air, I guess that would be it. But so it just struck me that our capacity for anything that truly crazy to happen to you. So anyway, then they want to try it again. They go to the king, which is probably Louis the Fourteenth. I don't know. Anyway, he says they want no, to test later. it with humans. Sixteenth, 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 or seventeenth. Yeah. So they want to go and 16th, test it. They stopped. Sixteenth, <laughs> because this is seventeen eighty-three. So yeah, this is yeah, it would be Louis right. 16th. This is where we're running the time. Yeah. The clock is running out. But they want to put people in it. And he says, oh, okay, so just put some criminals in it. So they were going to send two guys from prison. Talk about your, you know, your That's tough on crime. That's, so, so they decide not to do that. But instead, they put a, um, a rooster, a duck, and a sheep, which I'm not quite sure how they picked those three. But they weren't quite sure why this why it went up into the air. They thought, the Montgolfier, they thought that the smoke, there was something in the property of the smoke that created the lift. And so in order to like create the right mixture of what would create those properties, they burned dung, they burned rotten meat, they burned wet hay. Anyway, they get the thing up in the air again. And um, who's there to witness it for the Americans but Benjamin Franklin. So he plays a a role here and signs the, uh, the paper so that it can be submitted to the the Scientific Association. Final obscure fact about the creation of the balloon is that when they finally send two dudes up in the, the balloon, it works. They land in a field, and damn it if the peasants don't come after them. They come and are going to run these guys through, but they have a bottle of champagne, which they were going to celebrate their flight with, and they buy off the peasants with the champagne, and they don't get killed. And that's why now when you have a hot air balloon ride, it's not just because it's part of your all-inclusive package at your weekend away in the vineyard. It's part of the tradition of having champagne in case you are set upon by peasants. I get set upon by peasants even without an air balloon. Yeah. <laughs> Megan, what is your, uh, what is your chatter? Uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't tell a great story like that. Mine's a little shorter, which is that Airbnb, the uh, the hotel room sharing, it's, it's you know, you can rent, allows you to rent out your house like a hotel. They're going out to get financing and the valuation that they are seeking 
would put them at $10 billion, which is more than like the combined valuation of most of the major hotel companies, which just suggests one of two things, right? Either Airbnb is going to be the most amazing property ever, and we're all going to be renting our room. I mean, that's actually quite innovative what they're doing. They're now talking about contracting the cleaning services in various neighborhoods so that you can have maid service in your in your Airbnb, or that we are in, definitely in at the point where the tech market is looking a bit frothy and it is time to uh, call in the peasants with the pitchfork. <laughs> All right, my chatter. Um, first, just a, a shout out to Dave Weigel's new podcast, The Weigel Cast. It has just started. It's really great. He's doing political interviews. Um, he had Howard Dean this week. He's got the governor of Kentucky, the Democratic governor of Kentucky, next week. Check it out in our feed, Weigelcast. It's it's fantastic. I want to chatter about a book that, that actually Slate uh, excerpted today on our homepage called The Way to Go. It's by Kate Asher. I have chattered about Kate Asher's work before because she, to me, is she's the only person whose books I buy as soon as they come out. Present company yes. accepted. She's the, the creator of beautiful books about infrastructure. So she did a book called The Heights, which is about building skyscrapers. The Works, which is about how cities work, just all about the infrastructure of cities. And now she has a book called The Way to Go, which is what we serialized, which was about how transportation networks work. And the part we did was actually about how air traffic control and, and it's weirdly apropos because of the Malaysian air. I mean, this is long planned, but how black boxes work, how runways work. The books are beautiful. They're simple. If you care at all about engineering or transportation or infrastructure, or you have a child that does, they are their gold. They're not books for children. I mean, children can read them, but they are, they're just incredibly vivid and clear and elegant. So get it. The Way to Go by Kate Asher. Have you, do you have one, John? I'm buying it right now. Yeah. You, you, it's, I mean, amazing. my son's going to like never leave the house. I was about to say, I want to I, I buy it for like a Christmas present for my dad, but my dad is amazing at tracking down every single piece of media I've ever done. So sorry, dad, I spoiled your Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, there, and there are three books. They're all, each one is better than the next. Let's do the credits. We have uh, Megan McArdle is a noted libertarian, and I noticed that her, her email address has kind of a libertarian echo. I'm not going to share it so that Megan doesn't, isn't barraged with emails from libertarians wanting to meet her. But in her honor, this is, in, this is for you, Megan. <laughs> I, 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 I quake. Yeah, that's the right posture to hold. <laughs> For 12 years, you've been asking, who is John Galt? This is John Galt speaking. When you were dragging the men who made your happiness possible to your sacrificial altars, I beat you to it. I reached them first and explained to them the consequences of your brother love morality. If you want to know how I made those men quit, I told them exactly what I'm telling you tonight, that it was right to pursue one's own happiness as one's principal goal in life. It's a deep John Galtian breath. They're with me now. You won't find them when you need them more than ever. But you will find links to what we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash GabFest. You can email us at GabFest at slate.com. Will we answer? No. We're not your slaves. We're on strike against your creed of unearned rewards and unrewarded duties. Go ahead. Follow us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest. Or Twitter feed, at Slate Gabfest. Truly, I don't care. I don't consider the pleasure of others, of you, my goal in life. I'm a trader. I earn what I get and trade for what I produce. I ask nothing more or nothing less than what I earn. I don't force anyone to trade with me. I only trade for mutual benefit. So if you want to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, if you think it will benefit you, go ahead and do it. You can search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. If you think it will benefit you, leave a comment while you're there. If you consider it a useful trade, for whatever benefit you've gotten from this podcast, go ahead and leave that comment. To those of you who retain some remnant of dignity and the will to live your lives for yourselves, you have the chance to make a choice. Examine your values and understand you must choose one side or the other. Any compromise between good and evil only hurts the good and helps the evil. That's what Mike Volo knows, which is why he produces this show as a beacon to the world. It's what Rebecca Cohen knows who's traded in mutual benefit her labor as an intern for a small salary and a chance to join us. It's what executive producer Andy Bowers knows, why he has led us in rejecting the code of selflessness and brother love morality. This gab fest wasn't built by men and women who sought handouts. For Don Dickerson and Megan McArdle, I'm John Galt. Know that the world will change only when you're ready to pronounce this oath. Megan, do you know this oath by heart? Uh I'm not actually an objectivist. <laughs> I, I just played one on the internet. I swear by my life and my love that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for the sake of mine. 
time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.